Hello, and welcome to yet another delightful episode of Such a Nightmare Conversations About Horror. Once again, and always, I am Catherine Troyer, and once again, and hopefully forever, I am joined by Anthony Tresca. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping for forever as well, but I don't know if... Yeah, I just can't say it's not as certain as, like, the fact that my name will remain Catherine, right, or Katie or whatever, so um, that that's the only thing, right? Like, I can't... I suppose, as long as object permanence holds true, um... I will always permanently be Anthony Tresca. However, if the theory of object permanence proves valuable and that it was actually a mistake, then I can't always guarantee I'll be the same object and I'll always be permanently here in myself. And what a great way (laughs) to begin a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic as we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible, which might have been that explanation of object permanence. Uh, Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And today we are so excited to have you join us, and we really are thankful you stuck around after that intro, uh, for 1989's Heathers. I told you before uh, we started recording that I'm I'm glad I waited to watch this film um, until now. I, I realized that it's like a, a serious, it was a serious gap, right, in my horror uh, education. But I feel like if I had watched it earlier, uh, I might not have been prepared to be as delighted by it as I was. Because uh, I think I would have expected it to be, I don't know, something, something else. Or, um, you know, for a while I just kind of really enjoyed the, the sort of like, brain candy version of horror uh and and heather's most certainly is not that so i I think now was the perfect time in terms of my like horror journey to watch this film and i had a delightful time yeah i heather's is certainly delightful or at least as delightful as a film about like casual murder can be but which is pretty delightful yeah i mean i'm concerned yeah this movie is 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 pretty delightful it looks gorgeous the acting's amazing the production design is incredible in this movie yeah i mean it is some peak like 1980s reagan reactionary uh filmmaking yes and i i think that's as good of a place to jump in uh, as any so you and i have made it very clear that there are certain types of horror that we're going to gravitate towards um, and, and things that are going to be horror comedy or, or dark comedies are usually going to, you know, appeal to us. Things that are vaguely and or explicitly meta narratives are also going to appeal to us. Um, and things that have the sort of like campy surrealness are going to appeal to you and I on various levels. But but still, nevertheless, uh, I think both of us is, is in the mood for a good sort of something that can become campy or something that can be read as the sort of like. Yeah super aware meta again narrative text and and heather's delivers absolutely i think i have a higher um threat i'm i'm much more willing to go with camp to for yes. longer than you are yes. but yes but it is something that we both definitely enjoy and heather's i'm uh, this is not my first time watching the film it's not my first exposure i am uh, how you say very well into the heather's averse of all of the <laughs> media around Heather's. I love the musical. Uh, the off-Broadway one, not so much the West End version, 
which we'll get into more in our spooky scrap about yes, this we one will. later on. But I love the Heather's universe, and it had been a couple of years, admittedly, since I watched this ver- the film version of Heather's, because I think I had kind of discounted it in my mind anyway, as being like, yes, I suppose it's the original, but... I, I didn't really love it when I first saw it. However, I think now with a couple years of distance from when I originally saw the film, uh, I think I appreciate this original film a lot more than on the first time I watched it. It really has grown on me. And I wonder if, if this is one of those sort of, and there there are several of these, I think, um, teen films that are not really meant for teens, right? Uh-huh. And I don't mean not meant for teens as in the, you know, teens can't engage with it, but like, I feel like, it has so much uh, more value to me now to think about the fact that um, that you will find your he- your Heathers uh, in in every place that you will ever be. Exactly. Right? Like I had I, them in grad school. I oh, had yeah. them, you know, in the workplace. Um, these are these are a thing, right? And so even though it's it's very fixed in high school, it's a film that's not really about high school, right? It's about life. The first time I saw the Heathers film, I was a junior in high school. So the same age as the characters in the film Heathers. And yet I find it, I found it much more relatable now uh, than I ever did when I watched it in high school. Because I think you're absolutely right. I think it kind of just like is set in high school and uses high school as a medium, but it is certainly not about high school explicitly and not necessarily as a result geared towards high schoolers who might be watching the film. I mean, you could easily rename this film Karen's, right? And and it would work just as effectively on a whole nother level for, for much of what has been happening in 2020 and 2021. Um, in fact, that should be, that will be my my spinoff of the Heather's film is I'm going to make one about Karen's and race. Um, so praise yourself for that. Uh, is Jordan Peele going to be involved as an executive producer? Yes, because I can make that claim <laughs> since he and I are casual acquaintances. Oh, wouldn't that be amazing if you were just like, hey, Jordan, I have an idea. And then he could just tell you right away instead of like desperate yeah. emails. So Jordan Peele, let's get a hotline set up just right away where everyone can call in with their race related horror properties yes, uh, yes. so that you can tell them in on this hotline whether or not it is a hot enough topic for you, sexy producer Jordan Peele, to move forward with. I approve of this plan so much. (laughs) And and actually, it's unintentional. It truly was, I promise. Uh, But this serves as a really lovely segue to to the scholarship that I want to bring in. Are you sure we didn't just have this whole supposedly casual conversation uh, as as a bizarre excuse for you to have this segue? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it was, I. what I did was, I was like, okay, how do I get there? And then I just reverse engineered it. And I was like, I have to make a joke so that Anthony, who can't help but make a joke. Yeah, it was wow. an extended, this yeah. So, it's how just, so very Heathers of you. <laughs> oh, I will take that compliment. <laughs> um, but but the, the framework that I want to bring in uh, comes from an article that was published by uh, Jessica Gildersleeve from the University of Southern Queensland. And so she has two things going for her, even before we get to the article. A very cool last name, and she gets to be in Australia. So, you know, win-win. Better better than better off than we are currently. Yes, as certainly. As two Americans true. with just eh, so-so last names. I know. Um, so her article's really fascinating because what she is doing is she's making this argument that there's a specific 
subgenre of film that she's identifying as the female click film. And she says there are plenty of films um, that have clicks uh, that are even have, there are plenty of films that have female clicks that those clicks get dismantled, like in Clueless. Um, but that there are a few films specifically where the female click is the center of the story. And so her article is looking at Heather's um, 1996 The Craft, which eventually someday we should talk about, um, 1999's Jawbreaker, and then 2004's Mean Girls. Um, and she's she's looking at, you know, the, the difference between, like, um, bullying that often comes about with male characters where it's more physical versus the, the like, sociopathic violence that occurs uh, within and outside the female relationships, right? That's kind of a quote from her. Um, and what I think is really fascinating about her article is that she's looking at all of this against the framework of objection. So we've talked about objection before. Um, it's an idea from the scholar Julia Kristeva. Uh, and she has a whole book that, that we've talked about to varying degrees in, in this podcast before about looking at the, the monstrous female and the idea of objection. But what I like is that Gildersleeve begins her article with um, the passage from Kristeva that says, objection is immoral, sinister, scheming, and shady, a friend who stabs you. And I just like, that just works so beautifully for for Heathers. In her article, Gildersleeve is talking about the idea that in each of these click narratives um, or female click films, there is a newcomer who tries to join the group and this click is acting as uh, the like the boundary, right? The gatekeepers. And that's very much what objection is about, like the infiltration of boundaries. So our, our newcomer, in this case, Veronica, is sort of the abject, right? Um, she's the, the thing that is intruding upon um, the established status quo. But part of what's interesting about the abject is that it, it really is about like, um, what makes it so fundamentally disturbing is that when we encounter something that's abject, like a corpse, a corpse is a really good example, it's, it can be hard to, to distinguish between like um, I versus you, right? Because it's like, I'm not a corpse, but a corpse was once a human um, and I will someday be a corpse, right? And so there's some ways in which from start to finish, Heather's is really the story about the abject, right? It's about this thing that is violating and aggressive and transgressive. Um, and then what makes Heather's interesting is that, you know, by the end, Veronica, when she grabs that red scrunchie, um, is either dismantling the system or reaffirming the system, depending on how you want to read that conclusion. Uh, so I think this is a really great way um, to think about about a film that is all about female bodies, particularly because it's all about like purging, literal purging. There, there is some literal purging in this. There's some little purging, right? And appearances and all of this stuff. And and Kristeva really defines the abject as being something that can be coded in the body, particularly the female body. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting starting framework into it. Although I think I might disagree slightly with it because I don't actually know if this particular framework works 100% for Heathers because Veronica herself is not, doesn't necessarily start the film outside of this cliquish itself. This is all true of the other films you named uh, where you clearly have the outsider starting outside of the group. But Veronica in this film, there is it's doing something interesting with it because Veronica is already, is clearly shown to be a wealthy, affluent, white person living in the suburbs who is just at least on the same level as these other he Heathers in terms of 
initial wealth and status that it provided to her because of that. And so she's starting from the outside only in the sense of her psyche being in the outside of yes. the group of the spear, not her literal physical self and the privileges that she's been allowed. Yeah, so the the other films really have that, like, montage, right? Mm -hmm. uh, often a, a shopping montage where, you know, we have to see um, the yeah. newcomer be truly assimilated to look um, like the the rest of them because she doesn't otherwise. And they also have, I think, a big difference in terms of socioeconomic class. And you're right. That's something that's very different about Heather's. That's one of the departures, and we can talk about this more, that the musical makes, right? Yeah. Um, because the musical follows that more traditional uh, framework. And I think you're right. What makes this film really interesting to me um, is, and one of the reasons I like it so much is that I, I like this idea that there is no reason that she should be discontent. Exactly. She's actually one of the favorites of, of the Big Heather, right? Mm -hmm. um, she's attractive. She, um, you know, her parents let her do what she wants. Um, really, like you said, uh, when we're hearing her, her angst in her diary, other than the fact that she's a teenager and therefore, by definition, filled with angst, she should be happy, right? She should be happy in her place. Uh, and that's an interesting place for the film to begin us with. Yeah, because it, rather than the literal thing of being a, a literal outsider who is trying to enter into this group, we see someone who has already successfully passed the barrier, transgressed a boundary, is in this group, um, and is now trying to figure out the way out, which is, I mean... It's a scarier concept than what we are, I think we were presented in something like Mean Girls, which you see the, there is that choice to come in and then you regret your choice to come in. We don't get to see that in this film. We don't see any of the regret from Veronica. And honestly, we're kind of led to believe that there wasn't any of this regret until Veronica came in here and realized how hollow and shallow and vapid it all is. And what I really like about this film that, that makes it, I think, markedly different from the other narrative type, right? So in the other narrative type, you're correct. What happens is that they infiltrate and then they realize that everything is so much darker than they thought it was from the mm -hmm. outside. And then there's usually the big disturbing incident, right? right. Whereas Heather's gives us, in, in some respects, the big disturbing incident in the form of, of Christian Slater's character, J.D. And, and yes, I realize that she goes to the party and, and things are really uncomfortable, but we get the impression that everything that Heather is upset about now has been going on for a very long time. Um, and so I like this idea that there doesn't have to be a big inciting incident, which goes very much against sort of Western narrative tradition of like Freytag's pyramid, right? Where you begin with an incident. Although this film does begin like the Greek tragedies that it is clearly inspired by, by beginning in medias race, right in the middle of an action that is already happening. And so yes. rather than taking the time to go through the establishment, the slow establishment of these characters, and then having them have to enter into the group, we're just already seeing the group being fully formed and the yes. consequences that are there as a result of this group. And by, by situating something in, in Medias Race, one of the, the consequences in this film in particular um, is, as you said, it, it has these roots to Greek tragedy, which in Greek tragedy, there's there's this inevitability, right, to things, right? That the gods have already sort of determined things and it's just up to us and whether we're going to make a mistake in the gods' plans that have already been predetermined. Yeah. Um, and so 
there's a sense of uh, a cyclical nature, right? A lot of the Greek tragedies actually are part of a cycle, right? Like we all watch and only pay attention to Oedipus Rex, but it's only one of the three plays of, of Oedipus's life cycle. Um, and and so this this film, Heather's has this, this sense to it that this is how it's always been. This is how it will always be. Um, it doesn't matter if we dismantle the system. It doesn't matter if, as the film says at the end, we have a new sheriff in town because every four years we're going to have a whole new group of students in, right, yeah. in high school. And so every four years this grand drama is going to have to re-happen again and again and again. It plays out again. And the only reason that it changes is because of the entrance of JD, who gets to assume the outsider role that is usually played by this character who is invading the central clique in these types of films. It is interesting to shift that role from a female presenting individual to having someone who is male presenting and the effect that it has on both the narrative and on the characters in here is vast. And I have to say that when we talk about the, the musical in more detail, that I will never be satisfied with any JD performance that isn't Christian Slater because boy, have I had a crush on Christian Slater since I think I knew what a crush was. Um, he just like, if, if you were to say like, who needs to be this person that you're like, why are you following him? Um, it's going to be Christian Slater, uh, especially a young Christian Slater. So I think, I think that you're absolutely correct that we have a really interesting decision here where, um, because the other difference is, is that a lot of times our, young female who's who's joining the group is she's flat right she's kind of characterless at the beginning it's not until Mm -hmm. she stands up that she finds her character whereas jd is an intruder that is a fully defined like he knows what he wants to do and he has Mm -hmm. a manifesto and he has an action plan um and that again is a very different way that this film operates than some of these other ones also usually the romantic plot is a way for the female character who is invading the group to find actualization that it is within the romantic confines that the character finds their self they discover themselves and they become a fully realized person who realizes what they're doing is wrong whereas heathers inverts that by having this relationship it leads to a type of actualization however it is not the same positive self-actualization that is normally portrayed as being found within the confines of high school relationships particular and being kind of a savior-y kind of thing to these characters trapped in these situations jd is not a savior <laughs> no no he's not and it's interesting because you know he is our so he's our like you said he's our romantic lead and he's our he's our primary male character mm-hmm. um other than the the obnoxious jock characters um, of course curtain well, ram Right, thank you. I knew you would know their names. Um, but it's interesting because his relationship with his father um, and the ways that he's sort of both sort of simultaneously reinforcing the 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 role that the patriarchy plays, but he's also like really upset with it and that he and his dad have the role reversal things. It makes for a really interesting narrative because the patriarchy is present in JD and that's such a complicated thing because JD is complicated. And so I think when I think about especially mean girls, right at the end of the day, she, she 
adheres back to the status quo and that's and that's just you know it's it's a new friendlier status quo it's the kind where everyone holds hands but there's really no like there's a really clear right or wrong um you know and whereas i think heather's starting with veronica and, and going all the way through jd really makes it difficult for us to say whether or not we can put anything or anyone neatly into a box yeah. certainly not into a heather shaped box right exactly the only Heather-shaped box that exists is a coffin. And there is no <laughs> there's no right or wrong in death. There doesn't matter. There's only death in death. Um, and the, only the living have to deal with morality. Um, that was a very, very clever statement that you just made. About, oh, well, thank yeah, you. So I, I, that, I, that deserves a slow clap. That, that was really fantastic. I'll wait for our listeners to give me a slow clap. I'll wait. I'll, I'll wait. Um, <laughs> and, and so we pause. <laughs> and so we pause. Um, another interesting thing, I think, about that not adhering to any socially constructed meanings of morality that is revealed through JD and even his relationship with his father is we see him slip in and out of those social roles that they both have to play with them acknowledging the performative natures that is present in their relationship as father and son and each playing the other version it, as a way both to uphold the power that these social roles have while also at the same time deconstructing it. And JD forces Veronica to acknowledge for the first time the socially constructed nature of the world around her and provides her with the, not, the immoral way out of this socially constructed reality of high school, of social cliques, and ultimately as he will scream, of society. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting because he is obviously the, the romantic interest, um, but he's also, if, if Veronica is going on the hero's journey, right, he's, he's the Gandalf, right, the one who's like, look, I'm going to take you outside the Shire and I'm going to show you all of these things. Um, and, th and then in that way, right, he becomes a sort of weirdly paternal figure at times and, and, ha and Veronica has to like cast him off. Um, and that makes for so much more interesting of a, of a romantic lead than almost all of the other female click films that I can think of where you, you realize by the end of the film, I'm not even sure they've talked in the film, right? Um, whereas you're right that, that he's sort of like, he's the catalyst for Veronica's metamorphosis right um for and of course it's not the it's she she didn't become the butterfly he was hoping right she became a moth and she's proud of it but like i think that that's a really interesting and rather profound way to to craft this relationship it kind of goes back to the idea that you won't change unless something forces you to change and jd is kind of this powerful force that forces change within veronica and it, I mean, you can even see that immediately once they like see each other. Veronica is like, wait a second, that guy is not just blindly submitting to the role, the social roles that are present in this cafeteria already. That guy is different. He's, he saw what I did and he's not letting me off by, and just like laughing about this note that I've written and this embarrassment that I've made Martha go through. He saw that I did it and he's like, hmm interesting choice and finally is forcing veronica to think about this the nature of everything that has been created uh 
in this cafeteria, which is a deep, deep analysis for a cafeteria, opening cafeteria scene, but I don't think it's inaccurate. <laughs> well, how many teen films have the, the requisite cafeteria scene, right? Where they're like, let me tell you where everyone's sitting. Um, and I think what's, what's interesting to me about Heather's and why I think it, it deserves a second, third, fourth sort of examination is that, um, on the one hand, the the film is helping us to realize that, like, just how much is artificially constructed, right? Like, and I know I'm going to piss off uh, any of our listeners that are also probably wrestling fans because every time I make the same, people get angry. But, like, there's something really um, homoerotic about, like, UFC fighting, right? Like, they're really up on top of each other. But that's okay, right? Because it's manly and it's, uh, you know, and they're winning a... a belt <laughs> you know and and so that's okay they win a stylish bedazzled a, I know, a, that they yes, wear and, above their crotch yes and it so does. it's okay <laughs> that like for a brief moment one man's crotch is is pushing another man's face down into the mat because again it's a sport um and we get that through through our jock characters right this idea that like is it when is it okay um is is patting each other on the butts really like so we get all of that, but at the same time that JD uh, is clearly this like nonconformist, he's also asking Veronica to conform just to his his method. And so the film, I think, makes us question these boxes and all this stuff. But I, I think it also makes us realize that that like we may never exist in a world where they don't happen. Yeah, right. I, we have to have a sheriff. I think the scary thing about JD is that way that he use the world he has realized that everyone is kind of just blindly conforming to the world around them and i think that particularly in america that's a frightening statement for a lot of people because i think yes. a lot of people like to think that they're individuals because we live in this land of of the individuals and individualism is really pushed but at the end of the day a lot of us don't know how to be individuals uh and that's a if that scares you just think about it for a second and think about why it's scaring you. And you have to decide which is scarier, right? The the individual who wants to blow up a school or the collective who are petty, admittedly, cruel, absolutely. But at the end of the day, they're not trying to literally kill people. Yeah, because JD is like, he sees this blind conformity and he's like, okay, we will never be able to stop this all of this conformity here so the only way for us to not conform is for us all to die which is not incorrect you couldn't say you can't you can't say that jd's philosophy ultimately at the end of the day is incorrect uh it just is a extreme reading of the situation but it is not an incorrect reading and so i i won't lie i i definitely don't condone violence in real life but in horror I'm, I'm all for it so there was a, a part of me that was like do it veronica <laughs> blow up the the school uh because I, I think you're right that the the film doesn't let us feel comfortable with either choice that's going to be made either she's going to decide that the status quo is worth saving mm -hmm. um or she's going to decide that it's not worth saving and and either way we're not going to have a happy ending yeah. and I, it kind of tries to force that happy ending on a little bit you know, where she, when she decides to, to spend time with her friend again, when she uh -huh. becomes the new sheriff in town. She takes back the scrunchie and yeah. redistributes power to herself. 
Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and so I think this film, it, it just goes just shy of where it really probably should end because it, it's not an affirmative horror film, right? It is, it is disaffirmative up until those like final seconds when it was almost like the filmmakers were like, oh, wait, this is 1989 and we are making a comedy. So, yeah, this was originally when the Daniel Waters read it, wrote the film. It was originally he wanted this Stanley Kubrick to direct it and it had a which much, makes sense which makes total sense I think Stanley Kubrick would have knocked it out of the park this was modeled off of Dr. Strangelove this and that same kind of like black comedy style and the film actually does end with JD being successful and the entire school being blown up however Hollywood producers were like we can't make that sexy and we can't make a lot of money so you've got to change the ending uh, and so it was a for it was a change in the production process in order to get the film made that they had to slap on this happy ending. Although, uh, jokes on you, Hollywood executives, this movie still bombed and didn't make a lot of money. So I guess it didn't matter. It was all the change was for nothing because it didn't <laughs> Which do feels a very more. fitting. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, they they try to force this happy ending on this narrative that doesn't have a happy ending and doesn't allow for a happy ending, and the result is it doesn't have a happy financial ending for those greedy capitalists as well. Hey, that's that's the price you pay, greedy capitalists. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm glad that I didn't know that. So I'm glad that you mentioned that because I wanted one of the things I wanted to talk about, which fits very specifically with my feeling that I had a sort of uh, Kubrick-esque feel, um, is, of course, the mallet. What is it called? What's the game? Croquet. Called? Thank you. It's, of course, the croquet uh, motif that runs throughout the film. And this is and not only does it does it have sort of like Shining-esque um, aspects to it, but it also, you know, harkens back to like Alice in Wonderland and the Queen of Hearts and things like that. But the idea of croquet, right, is it's such a, it just like, it doesn't make any sense. And yet it makes perfect sense. And, and it's like so absurd. And yet it's not absurd really at all, because it's not like this wild thing. It's just something that doesn't make sense. Um, and I felt like one of the things I really appreciated about this film was its ability to, to to create through form, not just content, this the sense of absurdity and this sort of meta narrative where it's it's very aware of itself as a teen film, as a horror film, or at least as a dark comedy. And and through these moments where we know that things aren't real, right? Um, but we also know that they're not entirely unreal um and again the good example is was when they're playing croquet um but there's lots of moments with the big heather um you know intruding and i just thought that was so brilliant because heather's ex demonstrates why you can't separate content and form right why if you really want a film that is going to be this haunting narrative you have to make sure that we have these like bright bold colors where we have red and blue um, that don't make any sense in that alley, but we're going to have them anyway. I just think that's such a clever, clever move on the filmmaker's part. Yeah, in a world that we're supposed to believe is socially constructed and as a result entirely artificial, the filmmakers are like, all right, so then we're just going to create a literal world that is entirely constructed and artificial looking as well. To match this idea that it is all constructed and made up, the film itself, of course, has to look that way. And it's a great choice. And it allows for some really visually inventive things to occur as well. 
like one thing that comes to mind for me of course is that uh the funeral scene where yes. everyone's wearing the weird 3d glasses and it's very surreal and veronica is which stuck in this headspace um and sees heather and realizes yes. that it never ends this none of this is ever going to end and that is just hor it's a horrifying sequence and it's really trippy and surreal because of the reality that it's yeah, touching so, on. Uh, in film, they talk about like the degree of subjectivity, right? Like how much are we identifying with how the character sees the world as opposed to this idea that, you know, we're seeing it as a, a bystander would. Um, and what I find interesting about the fact that this film is so subjective is that one of the things that doesn't come up in the narrative itself, but I think we have to ask ourselves as viewers is whether or not we can trust Veronica as a reliable narrator, right? So technically, um, none of this could be happening on this grandiose scale. Uh, you know, like JD could just be talking about like, quote, blowing up the system, right? And she just like interprets it as this elaborate scheme because we see her doing that all along. Um, we know that characters die, be or we think we do, but you know, I could just as easily see this film ending with Veronica finishing her daydream. Right. And and like classes ended. Uh, and I like the fact that, that the film asks us to consider what is plausible and then realize that everything is plausible in this world because nothing about high school makes sense. Nothing about it. Um, and the things that we think make sense. Yeah. Are only because we haven't paused to consider them. Exactly. Like and it really does that in scenes where it cuts like it shows off something occurring that is seemingly fairly mundane. And then it cuts back to Veronica being alone, away from the rest of yes. the world, writing in her journal, and describing the scene that has just happened in an entirely yes. different perspective. And it's just as like, okay, it, it, you're it's doing exactly what you're saying. It's making sure that the audience knows that it literally can't trust anything it sees, it can't trust anything it hears, because it's all being filtered through the lenses of various different characters who all are see the world in vastly different ways that are not wrong they're just different and so whereas some films like mean girls but also just a lot of the the teen dramas give you a character that you're supposed to identify with and to see as the person that, that you're supposed to want to be i'm not sure we get that in heathers right because veronica is unhinged um she oh, is yeah. she never really has a change of heart she just realizes she doesn't want to have an, a, a male heather in her life right which is how she begins to see jd and so i think it's really fascinating uh the degree to which this film makes sure that we feel alienated from everyone including the character we're quote rooting for yeah because really the only reason veronica ultimately decides to stop jd is not i mean i suppose it's a little bit because of the killings but it really is just because she realizes JD is another mechanism of control yes. in her life. He's just another being who forces her into uh, conformity to conformity because she is just conforming now to his worldview and this toxic way in which he views and processes the world. Now, and so I think it's entirely possible that Ver had Veronica not realized that, Veronica would have blown everything up and kept killing. Or if Veronica had been like, I actually think I know a better way to kill people and to get what I want, that Veronica goes down an entirely different path. But it's only because 
she realizes uh, that that JD is carrying out this Heather role that she does anything. Yes. Yeah. She, she talks to him a lot about not how terrible is it that we kill people, but you promised me we wouldn't do this anymore. Or I feel we're out of control, right? The, the words and the, the way she's understanding this, it has, like you said, it has much more to do with her desire to write her own narrative just as she does in her journal and she realizes that jd is not going to allow her to be the main character of her story and that's what she wants more than anything yeah there there's one other thing i I wanted to make sure that we got in here uh because of the way that this film treats something that you and i laugh about a lot in horror um particularly horror set in high school right Uh so you and i have, have made fun of um at length the the moves that happen in, I think, every single horror film that has a classroom scene. Yeah. Where it just so happens, right, that the instructor, <laughs> yes. the teacher, right, is having a lesson that just perfectly fits what they're doing in real life. Um, and how, like, the, the students are just like, ah, yes, a nihilism. I see how that applies to my current situation, right? Um, but in this film, what I thought was so funny uh, is this idea that, like, you know, they, they're citing all the classics, Moby Dick, uh, Sylvia Plath, and but they're using them and, and showing us that, like, maybe we shouldn't have high schoolers be reading these books that are really rather complicated and complex unless we're okay with students only understanding the surface details, right? Because, like, everyone is, is misusing um, these big texts and they're misusing them, you know, as a way to like think about uh, suicide and things like that. And not that Sylvia Plath doesn't, you know, have stuff to do with, with suicide. But what I, I found so funny was just, again, the sort of like very astute observation that we are asking high schoolers who are dealing with all these other things and who may not have the depth needed to, to translate what we are saying are, are the quote, greatest works of our language. And then we're surprised when they just steal the surface value of like, this is the story of the quest for that, which you can never have. Yes, but it's so much more than that. Right. Um, and I just, I appreciated so much this break from the, the more, uh, traditional, like high school students are giving the message that they need exactly in the time that they need. And they're following it because you know, that's how school works that we get in a lot of, uh, teen horror. Oh yeah. This it does not allow school to work in any sense no it is clearly just another mechanism of control in these students life which i mean um this is not a new idea no foucault wrote a whole book about that about how schools are just essentially a mechanism for discipline uh and i think that it's pretty explicitly shown here and even the attempts to kind of show a more nurturing side of what education in school uh, are are ultimately revealed in this movie to just be a waste of time too because it's just another sense of like exploitation and can, a way to control people and control the feelings and make sense of the world. And a lot of a lot of films, period, but also a lot of uh, horror films, and then just also teen films, are are real quick to point out the the ineffectiveness or the the problems of of teachers themselves, particularly like the creepy teacher or the like kind but not smart teacher. And they're also really good at pointing out the problems of the system, right? The fact that we like um, allow students to, to run free until we decide we're going to wrangle them in. But I feel like this is one of the few texts that I can think of that also is critiquing the content. 
um, and saying that it's not just the people and the system that's the problem. It's also what we're actually doing and expecting students to engage with and learn. Um, and it's it's not that things are are more racy or that we should ban certain stuff. It's that we have to understand that we are asking a group of people who are biologically still developing mentally, physically, everything to be encountering these texts that we are saying are the profound ways to understand humankind. Right? That seems a intriguing mix yeah. uh, in terms of curriculum. And I think it just goes back to another point that the film is making that is something that is often, if it is acknowledged in teen films, it's not really acknowledged, It's or it's just like a throwaway thing. It's just like the fact that these are all children. Every character in here is a child. And we get a couple, we get reminders of that in this film. Um, but it's just another, it's a hilarious thing to, to see the absurdity of a lot of what we ask children to do and this film actively kind of not not shy away from it and not just be like yeah but that's the way we do it it's just like yeah but again they're children should they really be reading moby dick or should we really be surprised when they choose to underline a single word <laughs> eskimo was it yes, <laughs> yes exactly uh, so all together uh heathers is, is a film that um I now understand why it has the sort of cult following because it's it's a film that has these multiple layers for interpretation. Uh, it's got the humor, but it's got the, the depth. Uh, it has the things that I, I want to see in my horror um, because at the end of the day, I'm, I'm left disquieted uh, yeah. because I'm not sure I'm going to do anything to make a difference. I'm not going to be Veronica. Um, I'm not one of the Heathers. And I'm also not one of the, the preyed upon characters. So... Who am I, right? Like, I, I feel like it makes me feel very uncomfortable with where I'm at. Uh, and that's that's what horror uh, should do. Yeah, it's a very discomforting, mostly disaffirmative film until it, like as we mentioned, kind of backs out of its, at the end, a little bit. But I even think, as we were alluding to in the conversation itself, the ending itself can be read in a disaffirmative manner as ha Veronica has just replaced this mechanism of control for these other characters and become the new sheriff in town. And it's any change to the system is merely surface level. It's purely aesthetic, aesthetical change rather than deep structural changes to the way in, it, in which any of these social and structural systems operate. Yeah, we may have a new sheriff in town, but we still have a sheriff. Exactly, exactly. and. And that is always going to be a little bit scary because it always removes control from individuals and forces some level of conformity. And the film doesn't have a really satisfying way out of that unless you subscribe to JD's notion that the only way out of conformity is death. Um, I thought I was going to have something else to maybe lighten that point, but I, I couldn't think of anything. <laughs> and, and I don't think we should, right? Because we should end on the dark note that the film deserves to have ended on. Well, there you have it. Those are our thoughts on, on the film Heathers. Um, and we would love to hear from you as always. So feel free to uh, connect with us on social media or to provide comments uh, either in the podcast, if that's how you're listening or in the video form. And we will have a spooky scraps on, on Heathers. Anthony, what will our spooky scraps be about? Well, as Longtime listeners of this podcast know we love 
musicals. We love musical theater. Uh, so we decided we would investigate the musical adaptation of Heather's. It's a bit of a longer scrap than usual, um, so maybe it's not a scrap, maybe it's a jaunt, a spooky jaunt. <laughs> but uh, we're going to be jaunting our way through uh, the Heather's musical, so I hope you will uh, go over to our YouTube channel and check that out. So normally we would be, uh, our next episode would be continuing our, our Nightmare on Elm Street investigation because we tend to do that every other episode. However, we have a really uh, big thing coming up in our next episode, and that is our next episode is our 50th episode. Mm-hmm. We're turning 50, uh, at least in terms of how many episodes we've released. Not the yes. actual age yet. <laughs> Not the actual age yet, but certainly the number of podcasts. And this is a, a big deal. Uh, and Anthony, you and I deliberated for, for quite some time on yes, what we, we wanted to do um, because it felt so momentous. Um, and we even picked a film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was The Babadook. And we were like, okay, we're, we're going to return to this film that we keep talking about. And then, Anthony, you uh, watched it and realized that was not the film you wanted our 50th episode to be on. You rewatched it. No, I have strong opinions about The Babadook, but I didn't think it would make for nearly as fun of a 50th episode as we had talked about going uh, and doing. So, uh, Anthony put his thinking cap on because at that p- this point I was just so overwhelmed and I have a hard time committing <laughs> at the best of times and this was not the best of times. And then Anthony had this epiphany that was, well, we love musical theater, as yep. we have just said. Mm-hmm. Um, we love horror comedy. Um, so why are we not uh, looking at a film that manages to tick all of those boxes? So we're going to do a sort of extravaganza for our 50th episode by looking at... What are we looking at, Anthony? Well, we're kind of just going to be doing a deep dive into Little Shop of Horrors. Primarily, our discussion is going to be anchored around two prominent film adaptations of this. The original 1960s version of uh, The Little Shop of Horrors, which is available for free on YouTube, so anyone can go and watch it there. Or if you have some ethical concerns about watching it on YouTube, you can also always pay money to watch it. And the other version of this film uh, that we are going to be talking about is the 1986 comedy musical film adaptation uh, directed by Frank Oz. And currently that film is on HBO Max, so feel free to check that one out there if you have HBO Max. Although I would recommend... When you're watching Little Shop, you try to get your hands on the director's cut, the director's version of this film, because the original theatrical ending of it, as we will talk about at length in our 50th episode, it it's not very good. Or certainly it doesn't have the, the magic that I think the, the staged ending has. So we hope that you will join us for this huge milestone. Um, we want to thank you so much, as always, for, for listening to us. Um, and for telling us your thoughts. And again, feel free to reach out to us on social media to leave us comments, either in our YouTube channel or uh, on the podcast, wherever you're listening to it. Um, Anthony, what else do they need to know from us? Well, once you check out our social medias uh, and click off this podcast, I want you to have a spooktacular day. <laughs>